Good evening. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Um, Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be starting in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need." Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last Sunday evening, Paul exhorted us to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, to lay aside the old man and to put on the new man. And now in this evening's text, Paul tells us exactly what our lives should look like when we lay aside the old man and put on the new man. He tells us that this change that God has worked in our lives to bring us from death to life should affect how we live in particular ways, that it should bear visible fruit in our lives. In this evening's text, Paul exhorts us against falsehood, against sinful anger, against stealing, and against unwholesome speech. But he doesn't just exhort us against these things, he also gives us positive affirmations for what we should do instead, and he grounds each with doctrine. And so for the rest of this evening, we'll examine these. And conclude with a look at Paul's final exhortation to not grieve the Holy Spirit and the implications thereof. So let's turn our attention to verse 25, which says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Again, notice the therefore. As we've already said, this is an indication that whatever Paul is telling us here is based on something he's just previously mentioned. In the case of our text this evening, Paul is now telling us the implications of our regeneration, of our no longer living as the Gentiles, of our putting off the old man and putting on the new man, of the gospel change toward holiness that should be present in the lives of every believer. Now, as we approach the Word of God, it is helpful to ask questions to bring us to a deeper understanding of what the author is trying to say. And one of the questions that Martin Lloyd-Jones asked as he was studying this passage is, why did Paul choose to exhort us against falsehood first? 
And in answering such questions, it is always helpful to keep the entire context in mind. And so we get our answer to that question by looking back to verse 24, which reads, And to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The very last word that Paul wrote prior to his exhortation against falsehood is the word truth. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about this. We are thus reminded that the most essential characteristic of the Christian life is truth, the truth. This is the thing that makes the Christian life such a complete contrast to the non-Christian life, to the life of the world. Also, in describing the old man, the apostle has been speaking about corruption as the lusts of deceit, which are the greatest characteristics of the sinful life. Nothing is so characteristic of the Christian life as the fact that it belongs to the whole realm of truth. In light of what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here, let's take a brief moment and consider a few passages from Scripture that speak about God's character in relation to truth. Titus 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 14.6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Paul is calling us to lay aside falsehood, and this is rooted in the nature of God himself, that God is truth, and God is thus full of truth, and that God cannot lie. In light of this, let us not forget Paul's exhortation in verse 24, that we are to put on this new man, and this new man is created in the likeness of God, in its righteousness and in its holiness of the truth. And also in light of Paul's exhortation against falsehood, it is helpful to remember that our adversary, the devil, is the father of lies. As we see Jesus explain in the following words, which he spoke to the Jewish leaders, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, when, sorry, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Paul exhorts us against falsehood, which is a character trait of those that are enslaved to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It is a character trait of the old man, of the way in which the Gentiles walk. It is a character trait which is in direct opposition to the gospel. In verse 22, Paul says, 
lay aside the old man. And he now exhorts us in verse 25 to lay aside falsehood. The laying aside of falsehood is a part of laying aside the old man, of putting off the old man, of discarding that which is of the flesh and living according to the Spirit. So Paul exhorts us to lay aside falsehood, but he doesn't stop there. He also says that we should speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, and then follows this up with why we should do this. He says, for we are members of one another. And so we see a pattern here, which Paul follows throughout this evening's text, this pattern of a negative exhortation and a positive exhortation, and then the theology that grounds it. Paul's positive exhortation is, instead of speaking falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. And then his appeal for the reason why is that we are all members of one body. Now, in making this appeal, Paul is taking us back to the doctrine of the church, which he just finished teaching us, particularly in verse 15, where he showed us the purpose of speaking truth to one another. Verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. So we see that Paul grounds his exhortation against falsehood, this exhortation to speak truth to your neighbor. He ties this back to the fundamental purpose of the church's call to maturity, to the building up of the body in love. In this evening's text, he is telling us what verse 15 looks like in practice. He's saying if you are growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, a sign of this is that you will lay aside falsehood and speak truth, particularly to one another. So the obvious question is, does this characterize us here at Lakewood Bible Chapel? Are we a people who have put off falsehood and now speak truth each one to another? Okay, let's turn our attention now to Paul's second exhortation in verse 26. He says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Notice the same structure as the previous exhortation. There is the negative exhortation. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is the positive instruction. Be angry, and yet do not sin. And this is followed by theology to ground the reason why Paul exhorts us in this way. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Okay, pay attention because what I'm going to say next might surprise you. Be angry and yet do not sin. This is not primarily an exhortation against anger. In fact, Paul is saying, be angry. And the point is, anger in itself is not necessarily sinful. Obviously, anger can be sinful because Paul immediately follows this statement with, and yet do not sin. But the point is that there is a way, there is a reason to be angry, and it is not sinful. So the question is, what does it mean to be angry and not sin? Well, sometimes this is called righteous anger, and righteous anger is being angry at what makes God angry. So the natural question then is, What makes God angry? 
Well, let's take a brief look at what Scripture says about this. Matthew 21, 12 to 13, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. In this case, we see Jesus angry at the fact that the temple, which was to be the place of worship, had been turned into a place of theft. And so it seems that God gets angry when greedy men take advantage, take advantage of and thus get in the way of those who have come to worship Him. Another example, Jeremiah 32, 28-29. Therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will capture it. And the Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses where the people have burned incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. It's very clear here in Jeremiah that idol worship provokes God to anger. And then we have Numbers 32, verses 8 to 10. This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Indeed, they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, and they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which Yahweh had given them. So Yahweh's anger burned in that day. And so we see that after the spies returned from the land and reported in their unbelief that there were giants in the land, and because of this they couldn't enter, this unbelief caused God's anger to burn. These are only a few examples, but I think we have enough here to at least begin to understand what what makes God angry, and thus what righteous anger is. In all three cases, there is a common thread, and that is anything that suggests something contrary to God's perfect and righteous character. In the case of Jesus clearing the temple, greedy men had turned the place of worship to God into a place of theft and exploitation, which is completely contrary to the character of God. In the case of the giving over of Jerusalem to Babylon, God does this because the people were worshiping false gods, suggesting that these false gods were more worthy of worship than the one true God. In the case of the spies who returned with a bad report of the promised land, their fear of going in to take the land suggested that God does not keep His word. And so Paul in our text this evening is saying that we should, in the new man, in our growing up into maturity in Christ, that we should be a people who do not embrace evil, who do not accept that which is contrary to God. Rather, we should be angry at these things. That there is a sense in which we as believers should be angered by wickedness, by evil, by sin, and by those things that anger God. And in being angry about these things, we should be angry first and foremost about the wickedness, the evil, and the sin that we find within ourselves. Paul exemplifies this for us when he is writing to Timothy and says the following, It is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. 
We should first and foremost be a people who hate the sin that still resides in our own hearts. And if we start there, if we start with ourselves, if we are suspicious of our own hearts, if we hate our own sin, then we will go a long way in being angry and yet not sinning. Further, righteous anger is to be angry about the things that anger God, whereas sinful anger is to be angry for selfish reasons, for reasons that are rooted in us, rather than for an indignation that is directed by what angers God. In addition, God in His perfect holiness can be angry and not tainted with sin, whereas we who still must be delivered from our bodies of death will always contend with our sin nature and its susceptibility to pervert a righteous anger into something that is sinful. As Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? And so the negative injunction that Paul gives is to not let the sun go down on your anger. And I think if we look at the theological ground that Paul offers next, we will see what he is talking about here. Paul grounds his exhortation on anger with the doctrinal statement of do not give the devil an opportunity. And so in saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger, Paul is highlighting the importance of not letting your anger settle in and becoming deep-seated bitterness. For bitterness becomes an opportunity for the devil to latch onto and tempt you toward further unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, may we, be, <clears throat> may we, as Paul exhorts us, be a people who hate our sin. May we be a people who hate our sin to the point that it angers us so much that we put it off. May we hate our sin to the point that it angers us so much that we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk and instead use our members for righteousness. Okay, let's turn our attention now to verse 28, in which Paul exhorts us against theft. Verse 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. In considering this new exhortation against stealing, it is important to realize that stealing can take many forms. Some of them more subtle, but still theft nonetheless. As Martin Lloyd-Jones explained in his commentary on this particular verse, you can steal material possessions, but you can also steal time. For example, if you are employed to do work, and instead you use that time in which you are supposed to be working to do something else, that's theft. You can also steal an idea. This often takes the form of plagiarism. So with this in mind, let us be aware of the more subtle ways in which we might steal, as well as the more obvious ways in which we can sin in this manner. Notice the negative injunction then to the one who steals, they must steal no longer. The word must that Paul uses here indicates that this is not just a mere suggestion. Now if you are a true believer, if you have been changed in the inner man, If you have put off the old self and put on the new self, then you will stop stealing. There is no caveat to this. A true believer must not steal. 
Now, the interesting thing to observe about this is the positive injunction in light of the negative. The positive injunction is, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Paul contrasts theft to laboring with our own hands. The reason that theft is so contrary to the life of a Christian is because it is rooted in a selfish coveting of another person's material possessions with no consideration for the other person's well-being. To steal something is to take something from someone else without working for it, without earning it, without laboring for it, and to do so regardless of the harm that it causes that other person. Whereas to labor for something is to receive something from someone else because you have worked for it, you have earned it, because you have given something of yourself to them. In the Christian ethic, working, to to labor for something is praised, it is good to work. Notice how Paul grounds this exhortation to not steal in theology. Paul says, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Paul says, don't steal. Rather, work hard and earn your material possessions so that once you have obtained the material possessions from your own hard work, you have something to share with those who are in need. What a contrast to the motive in the heart of one who steals. On the one hand, the motive of the thief is pure selfishness. On the other hand, the motive of the one who works is utter selflessness. This is way beyond merely coming into possession of something in an honorable manner. And thus distinguishes true Christianity from just mere morality. Our motive as Christians in doing hard work is so that we would be able to share with those who are in need. Just let me ask, and I ask this because it's convicting first for me, is the motive for our work, the motive for our hard labor rooted in equipping us with the ability to share what God has blessed us with, with those around us who are in need? All right, let's turn our attention to verse 29 in which we find Paul's fourth exhortation, which says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so we see the first negative exhortation, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, followed by the positive exhortation, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed. And the reason for this is so that it will give grace to those who hear. Brothers and sisters, the way we speak is a reflection of who we are. It is a reflection of where we are in our walk with the Lord. The kind of language that we use, the content of our speech, the tone of our voice matters. I think that the following statement by Jesus in Matthew 15:11 sheds light on this. Matthew 15, 11 says, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And then a few verses later, Jesus explains to Peter exactly what he meant when he said that. 
He says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And so when unwholesome words proceed from our mouths, it is a reflection upon the condition of what is going on in our hearts. So rather than speaking unwholesome words, words that are crude, words that are hurtful, words that are harsh, words that consist of coarse jesting, Paul positively exhorts us to speak words that are good for building up what is needed. And when this is considered alongside the theological grounds that Paul gives, that it will give grace to those who hear, it becomes clear that our speech is no longer our own, just like our bodies are not our own. As believers, our speech should be used to bless, to serve, and to edify those around us. Our speech should not be selfish, but selfless. To speak unwholesome words is to speak in such a way that serves self It is to speak in such a way that puffs up. It is to speak in such a way that draws unwholesome attention to oneself. But to speak words that are good, to speak words that build up what is needed, to speak words that give grace to those that hear, is to speak in a way that serves others. Let's examine our hearts with fear and trembling and let us be honest with ourselves. Does our speech serve others or does it serve others? Pardon me, does our speech serve ourselves or does it serve those around us? Does our speech build ourselves up or does it build up those around us? Now let's consider the final three verses in this evening's text, which says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Paul has given us four examples of what it looks like to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. He has given four examples of what it looks like to lay aside the old man and what it looks like to put on the new man. And now Paul takes us back to theology again. He reminds us that the way we live, the things that we say and do, if those things are contrary to the nature of God, that they can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul's exhortation is don't do that. Don't do it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And Paul's point here is that if you, in your union with Christ, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, it is inconsistent to do things that would then be contrary to the desires and command of God. It simply doesn't make sense. 
His point is this, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. It reminds us of the fact that the way we live can either grieve or bless the Holy Spirit. And Paul now gives us two lists. The first is a list of things to refrain from which grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In this first list, Paul is suggesting that we shouldn't do the following things because they are contrary to God's design for your life as a Christian. And thus these grieve the Holy Spirit of God. There is a selfishness to these things. There is a harshness to these things. They are contrary to the new man. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. And the second is a list of things to strive for, which bless the Holy Spirit. Things that are in stark contrast to the harsh and selfish character traits that grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says, instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Notice that these things which bless the Holy Spirit are rooted in us treating others the way God has treated us. God has shown us grace. God has given us salvation, which we don't deserve. So we too should show the same kind of forgiveness and grace to others. And let me just say, if you are are sitting here tonight and have not experienced God's grace to save you from your sins, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then I encourage you by faith to repent of your sins and embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I encourage you to do it this evening before you walk out those doors. And for those of us that know Christ, the fact of the matter is that our lives are a reflection of God in us, a reflection of Christ taking up residence in our hearts, which is something that Paul was praying would be the case for those in Ephesus. He says, In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that He would give you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. May we be a people whose lives are changed, a people who not only were saved by the gospel, who live day in and day out by that same gospel. May we be a people who no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, a people who lay aside the old man, a people who put on the new man. May we be a church full of people whose lives don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead bless the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel back up, and uh, I'll close us with a final to close us with a final song after I pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you for these words. Lord, they are challenging, they are convicting, but Father, they're a reflection of what our lives should look like if we are truly one of your children, Lord. I pray that you would help us to do this, that we would reflect Christ in our hearts in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.